finance is a big and powerful lever of change. And we are now at the point where this is both morally and ethically necessary, but it's also financially necessary. So if you have a medium to long-term investment time horizon, you simply cannot ignore sustainability. And it presents both risks, but extraordinary opportunities. Welcome to the Fincia podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Rachel Etherington, an investment advisor at Creestone Wealth Management, who describes herself as a sustainable investment zealot, uh, who's been in the field for more than 15 years in the UK, US and Australia. So that's a great place to start. Rachel, perhaps you can explain a little bit more about why you call yourself a zealot. Thank you. I honestly can't understand why sort of everybody isn't. Um, essentially, I'm a sustainability zealot, which is like saying I'm I'm passionate about all life on Earth, both continuing and flourishing. Um, one thing I think the sort of sustainability or environmental movement has got very wrong is not positioning climate change and biodiversity loss as a humanitarian issue and an issue which will ultimately affect all of us. Um, and, and why sustainable investment in particular? Because finance is a big and powerful lever of change. And we are now at the point where this is both morally and ethically necessary, but it's also financially necessary. So if you have a medium to long term investment time horizon, you simply cannot ignore sustainability. Um, and it presents both deep risks, but extraordinary opportunities. Okay, right. Um, obviously, we're speaking on the eve of uh, COP twenty six, um, mm. and you know, from as as you're speaking as well, you know, you, you cannot you know open a uh, a news website, um, um, you know, without looking at uh, something to do with um, sustainability. Um, you know, with this warning from the RBA about uh, investment falling off uh, or I mean, you know, we've even had some political changes uh, of heart recently. Um, but much of it, this uh, conversation is quite prescriptive. And I think you've already mentioned that there's opportunity and it, and it has been spoken about, not least by Mark Carney. Um, can you expand on this? Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with Carney. Um, he has articulated many times that this is the biggest investment opportunity of our lifetimes. He talks about rewiring the entire economy. If you think we've created a sort of carbon emissions and biodiversity destruction based economy. And of course, that wasn't no one set out with those sort of evil, quote unquote, intentions. But that's just the nature of the economic system and the sort of economic incentives that have been created. And we're now faced with what is undoubtedly and the IPCC report recently has really reinforced that. We're faced with an existential risk. So to circumnavigate, to avert the direst of consequences as a result of climate change and biodiversity loss, we're going to have to invest a lot of money. So figures vary, but we're certainly talking in the sort of trillions of dollars um, in terms of what will need to be invested annually if we're, we're to achieve net zero, which means... Um, net zero by 2050, which means keeping global temperatures 
ideally around 1.5, if indeed that's still possible, but certainly under two degrees. And really what that means, it's very easy to get caught up in these figures, but what it means is that is necessary for us to continue to have a livable planet. So if you think about the vast amount, the vast change, it comes with, um, brings with it vast financial need and thus vast uh, investment opportunities. Um, So we're thinking and we're looking at things, of course, like renewables, um, although that's not just generation, but infrastructure too, you know, as we're seeing in Europe, um, unless one has um, uh, stable and robust grids and long and short term storage, you know, the wind won't always blow and the sun won't always shine. Now, I don't want everyone to sort of point a finger at renewables entirely. The problems in Europe are multitudinous, uh, including Brexit, including sort of geopolitical stances from uh, Putin, including a fire in a major gas pipe. And, you know, I mean, there are many reasons, but there's an unequivocal truth that renewables are intermittent. And so, yes, we need to do things like um, build uncorrelated renewable generation assets, but we also really need to invest in short and long-term storage. So that thing, that's things like lithium batteries and indeed hydro, for example. But the investment opportunities everybody thinks to renewables initially, they're far greater than that. So if you think about um, energy efficiencies, if you think about building efficiencies, you know, our building stock, for want of a better phrase, are responsible for a huge amount of global emissions. Um, Likewise, agricultural practices, you know, we're going to have to feed more people, but using less land. So again, we need efficiencies there. We need to electrify pretty much everything that we possibly can. Um, Again, you know, installing um, heat pumps, etc., to alleviate the reliance on gas, as as again, that has contributed to the problem in the UK. And we'll be creating, and Mark Carney is in his role within a um, sort of COP26 finance SWAT team has talked a lot about this. We'll be creating and fostering new markets. So carbon markets is going to be a carbon exchange established um, in Australia in 2023, biodiversity markets, water markets. And so this is a, just a magnificent opportunity for, for family offices and individuals um, I personally at Crestone deal with um, high net worth and, and, and family offices, uh, high net worth individuals and family offices, and indeed some non-profits. Um, we're a wholesale investment advisor, which uh, precludes us from dealing with a sort of retail market. But, you know, the, the people to whom I'm speaking and the people with whom I have the absolute privilege of working Um, really have an understanding that these things are sort of long-term issues, that the market might not be pricing all of them correctly yet, but the tide is turning. um, And they both want to build in resilience to their portfolios to mitigate risk associated with climate, by which I mean both physical risk, but also transition risk. And then, of course, as I say, expose themselves to what is an enormous investment opportunity. Are you seeing um, those, you know, family offices and high net worth? Are, are they, you know, we, we've we've seen federal government being slow. Um, talking, state governments seem to be uh, better from conversations I've been having. 
Um, and, and, you know, as you're talking about the opportunities, um, especially the housing stock and, and, and how it could be improved in terms of energy efficiencies, uh, certainly from my point of view, um, what are you seeing um, on, on all of those things? There's a few questions there. Yeah, there are a few questions there. Um, again, if one looks at the um, objectives of COP26, there's very much an understanding that this is going to be this is going to require public, private, and sort of blended finance. Um, so yes, there are clear roles for global governments in terms of infrastructure, for example. And, and, and let's not forget that's not only in terms of mitigation, but it's also in terms of adaptation. Um, so even if we were to turn off the emissions tap immediately, because of the nature of emissions, they stay in the atmosphere for centuries, you know, the, the world is going to warm. So um, infrastructure, there needs to be significant government infrastructure in, you know, preparing for increased flooding, ensuring that infrastructure assets can withstand um, exceptionally high temperatures, uh, etc., so there's undoubtedly clear roles for government, but where I focus again is the sort of private investment area. And I'm absolutely seeing um, more and more focus. And what's very interesting, Lewis, is that, of course, I'm dealing with multi-generations in families. And there is, not always, but often, a sort of generational divide where some of the older generation are less uh, are taking these things up with less alacrity. As soon as I say that, I think of some of my clients who are in their 70s and they are leading the charge. So this is certainly isn't across the board. But what is unequivocal is that the younger generation, and by which I mean people in their 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s, it's, it's not just the sort of 20-year-olds, are deeply um, committed and convinced by um, all of these issues. And they really have a, set, a very different sort of set of criteria and a very different lens through which they look at these issues. And it's very interesting, Lewis, there used to be an idea that one would um, you know, make money in, in any way, by any means on one hand, and then um, give some of that um, uh, some of that money away through phil philanthropic activities. Now, philanthropy is absolutely vital, and it always will be, and it's the best of human humankind. But what I think people are realizing now is that sort of dichotomous approach isn't necessary, and actually isn't the most effective. You know, I've had this conversation with clients where there's a sort of realization that why would you create a problem with? one hand and then trying to resolve it with the other hand using far less capital. So there used to be a, a, a scenario, and this is the same for some nonprofits, where, you know, even if you're an environmental nonprofit that are addressing biodiversity and climate change, your portfolio, your assets might be managed in a way that didn't have any sort of uh, um, it, um, any consideration of those issues. And so that's that's really changed. So this sort of dichotomous approach is really, um, we've moved well past that. And as I'm often saying, we are at the point where we no longer have to think about, am I going to compromise returns if I embark upon environmentally, sort of socially um, 
you know, purposeful investments, certainly from an environmental perspective, you know, returns are going to be compromised in the medium to long term. There is going to be value destruction um, if you're not embedding these things. You know, we're already seeing stranded assets, etc. So a lot of the time with families with whom I'm dealing um, see this increasingly and 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 yes I, I can't say everybody's rushed into it you know 100% but the 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 urgency and the appetite is growing 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 but um more and more families are seeing this as a way to sort of create legacy and um do something of real meaning um and that's very very sort of interesting and that's very very powerful you know one of my clients said to me the other day that there's no point them making lots of money in a way that is going you know that they can then bequeath to their children if they have by doing so increased and magnified the problems that their children are going to inherit as a result of climate change and biodiversity loss do you have any sort of um uh ballpark figures of how over the last few years that that kind of attitude has changed you know percentage wise you know maybe just you know for example 10 percent of them had that attitude in 2017 but what it's like now the the figures i mean um there are so many i um i could could give you when one sees the inflows into funds there's you know sustainable investment and environmental investment is just really increasing and that actually wasn't derailed by covid in fact it was really reinforced during covid i think a lot of investors had this sort of existential fear and this realization that actually we're not all powerful um and that these big macro ex- ex- exogenous threats can emerge and they can disrupt everything so unlike during the global financial crisis when we did see a um stalling of green investment interest this time around it's only been sort of um it's only been uh increased as a result of covid and i will tell you one thing you know which often isn't i think understood broadly in Australia, but more and more we're seeing, there was a recent survey and a recent sort of um, research piece done by the Australia Institute, but we're really seeing that the Australian electorate, the Australian people want more done about climate change, are increasingly concerned about climate change. And there was an ABC survey done, I think, either during or just after COVID, when it it for the first time said that the Australian people were more concerned about climate change than they were about the economy. And that's huge because normally, whichever country you're in, the economy is the number one concern. But that very much echoes what the um, World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report has been telling us. And it's funny when people sort of um, are aghast at the, the, the rapidity and the devastation of covid they that has long been predicted in things like the the global risk report they talked actually with horrifying prescience in february 2020 a month before the pandemic emerged that our, our window of opportunity for coordinated um action against a pandemic was shutting fast and a month later there we were so the reason i often sort of draw one's attention to that is that they too talk about climate change. They talk about it as being risks 
um, highest number of risks in terms of severity and in terms of likelihood. And yet, unfortunately, humankind is very bad at really rallying itself until we're at the edge of the precipice. You know, we are fundamentally as people sort of short termists. And until it until the lights aren't on or the world is, you know, or the bushfires are happening or, you know, we're able to sort of disconnect ourselves from it. So a lot of what um, Carney, what um, COP26, um, what we at Crestone are trying to do is to sort of really bring forward that sense that this is real, this is happening and this is uh, this isn't just a sort of existential esoteric threat. It's a um, keen and clear investment risk. And as I say, investment opportunity. On, on that, and, and uh, I think it's probably going to wrap up around now, um, as you were talking about things, um, you know, much more immediately, threat being much more immediate. I don't know that um, 2050 is the, is the date, um, but it's still there and on everybody's minds, but I, I just wondered what you thought um, you hope to see or want to see next thought, year, two years, and up to 2030, because there is a changing attitude that, you know, and, and things need to be done. In, in terms of investment, shall we say, what do you, um, yeah. what do you want to see? Well, um, I mean, how, I've got a laundry list as long as your arm in answer to that question, but essentially we need to see systems change you know, in my ideal world, if I could wave a magic wand tomorrow, I'd want to see biodiversity destruction and unabated carbon emissions come to a grinding halt. Of course, that's not entirely realistic. So we're talking about a sort of utopia here. Um, we need to decouple economic growth from consumption through efficiency gains, the circular economy principles, renewable penetration, Um I mean, I'm I'm not best positioned to to comment um, politically, but from a policy perspective, globally, I'd like to see serious commitment to net zero, perhaps being brought forward to 2030. I'd like to see a price on carbon and biodiversity, so they're financially valued and accounted for. Just as an aside, over 50% of global economic output is reliant on ecosystem services and biodiversity. And yet we're using them up at almost twice the rate that they can re be replenished. And because there's no financial value attached, that can continue unabated. Um, I'd like to see coordinated investment, as I said earlier, in not just renewable generation assets, but grid infrastructure and storage. Um, I'd like to see an end to deforestation. Um, we have so many solutions to the climate crisis available to us now that we could adopt. And one of them is actually avoided, you know, avoiding and preventing bio further biodiversity um, destruction and, and, and loss. And, you know, while technological breakthroughs and we are seeing them rapidly, particularly in things like energy storage and the cost of renewables, while te technological breakthroughs are going to be a critical part of this, we can't sort of rely on what they might be able to do in the future. But, you know, all of these ideas that I've talked about today, from energy efficiencies to renewables to biodiversity and water markets, to building materials, to electric vehicle infrastructure, to hydrogen, to green hydrogen, um, they all represent investment opportunities. So I think more than anything else, I'd like to see all investors shift towards a sustainable portfolio. And as I said earlier, gone are the days when one had to choose between financial return and environmental outcomes. 
um, increase, in, indeed increasingly opposite is true. You won't be able to make the kind of returns you have had and have been able to do in the past if you don't embed these principles into your portfolio. Okay, I think that's um, food for thought for our members um, as we, you know, um, all, all eyes would probably be on top 26. Um, and I think this has been, uh, um, well, fantastically insightful for me. Um, so on behalf of our members, Rachel, thank you very much. Um, and, and maybe we'll have to catch up in a, in a few months' time to see how things are going. Indeed. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.